Well, it's been over two months since we've gathered together. And uh, I know you all are wondering, when are we going to be able to meet again? And we don't have a specific date in mind or decided yet for three reasons. Uh, one and foremost is safety. And so there were 26 new cases identified in Denton on Tuesday. They had the first drive-through testing, I think, uh, Tuesday as well. And 12% of those driving through were confirmed. And so what we don't want to do is regather too soon in a way that jeopardizes the health, not just of those who are in high-risk groups, but also of anybody. And so we want to make sure that we're being wise there. Uh, secondly is a question of capacity. And so the Office of the Attorney General and the Office of the Governor of Texas have issued as of May 5th a revised minimum standard health protocols for churches and religious gatherings. And some of the requirements that they specify here is that there must be at least two empty seats between an individual or a party, and then there has to be an empty row between the seating. And so there has to be six degrees of separation and 360 degrees, which in the current sanctuary wouldn't allow us to gather as a family. And so we need to think through what that is. And because it's a phased reopening, we don't know if those are going to loosen or to get in there and to figure out if we can arrange the seats in a way that allow us to gather as a family. And some churches are doing multiple services to accommodate those restrictions. And so David's daughter, Brooke, and her husband, Jacob, were saying that their church in Waco have divided the church alphabetically into five groups, and they come in five waves, and they have five services, and that way they can maintain the empty row, empty two seats, and the other protocols specified by the governor, and that's not an option for us. Uh, we have a single service, and we don't want, right now, with the numbers that we have and would expect, we wouldn't be able to accommodate the people who would come. And then thirdly, uh, I was going to surprise some of y'all, but I'll tell some of y'all, we've been able to make some improvements while the church was empty, and we were hoping to make more extensive improvements. And we didn't know exactly to what extent we'd be able to do those and get those done. And so that was another reason for not rushing to reopen because we wanted to take advantage of neat open building to do some remodeling projects that are gonna make it a more blessed facility for everybody. So for those three reasons, safety, capacity, and improvements, we haven't chosen a date yet. But we know that people are asking questions and people are getting antsy and eager to see the family again and other churches are beginning to regather. And so that is under discussion and prayer and we'll let you know and, and know that we're eager to be back together again too. Because hopefully the time apart has made everyone appreciate the church more. Uh, the church isn't just a building. It's not just a service. It's a family. And when you can't gather with family, you miss it. And Unlike some families, like uh, Glory joining the Peacocks, you choose a local church family, either informally with your feet or more formally through official membership. And thus far as a young church, we've assembled informally, but this summer we're gonna begin transitioning to a more formal explicit membership, uh, an identification of who's in the family and who's a guest. And for those looking for a local church home and family, what does that mean? And so we're going to begin walking through the constitution and bylaws of Dini Community Church to educate everybody on what exactly is there, why it's there, give you opportunities to ask questions, and then also to be able to convey that and explain that to others. And so tonight, I'm going to start off with just some of the opening pages of the constitution and bylaws, beginning with our logo and our name. Uh, when we first began asking people to give us uh, possibilities on a logo, we wanted something modern but classic, contemporary but classic. And we got several uh, creative ideas on that, but they didn't have the cross. And one thing that we insisted on is there has to be a cross because the cross is at the center of the faith. And this is the gospel by which we're saved. This is what we preach. This is what our hope is in. This is our identification with Christ. And so there has to be a cross. And what they gave us was this beautiful open cross of pathways, of venues coming from all directions. And so whether you're on this side of McCormick or that, and whether you're coming from north or south of Willowwood, people converging together on the cross, focused on Christ 
and gathered around our Lord who died as our substitute so that we could be reconciled to God. And this idea of openness and welcome reaching in all directions, but firmly planted there in the Dina community. And initially, the name of the church was going to be Dina Bible Church. And then as we talked more and more about what we wanted the church to be, we wanted it to be a community. We wanted it to be a community that reached into the Dina community. And so early on, we decided to move from Dina Bible to Dina Community Church because we are a family. We are a community. We're not just a service or a building. And we feel God has placed us to reach into the Dina community. But of course, membership in the church and involvement is by no means limited to or restricted to those living in the neighborhood. There's no residency requirement. But of the 34 schools in Denton, we want to reach into Frank Borman because that's our school. And of the other rec centers in the county, we want to reach into Denia because that's a third of a mile from the church. And of the many neighborhoods needing the gospel, they have other churches close by, but we felt like God put us here to reach intentionally with the gospel into this neighborhood and into the surrounding areas. And so that's the reason for the logo and the name. The first article of the Constitution is our identity. And we define ourselves as a congregation of believers in Jesus Christ, known as Dina Community Church. And DCC is an independent, self-governing entity with no official connection to any outside body. So I was on staff at Denton Bible Church for 15 years, and Alan Chamberlain was an elder at Denton Bible Church, and many other people have long histories with Denton Bible Church. So before we began this work, uh, I met with Tom Nelson, the senior pastor of Denton Bible Church, and my spiritual father, and told him what I felt the Lord was leading us to do. And he gave us his endorsement, his approval. He called a special session of the elders to give it their unanimous endorsement and approval. He called me uh, at the next staff meeting, less than five days away, to personally announce to the staff the ministry that the Lord was leading us to do. And so this is an independently initiated work, but fully endorsed and approved by Denton Bible Church. So we are aligned in our ministry of making disciples by equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, but we're unaffiliated in any way. And so this was not initiated by Denton Bible. This is not run by Denton Bible. This isn't a church clone of Denton Bible but it was fully endorsed and approved by Denton Bible because we didn't want to do anything that would be divisive or cause any controversy in the body of Christ. This leads to the further explanation of our identity and some of our distinctives as a community. Dina Community Church is a spiritual family of saved sinners. Now, we didn't want any pretenses of self-righteousness or that we think that we're any better than anyone else. Uh, we are sinners who have been saved by Jesus and brought into his family. And we love God. We love one another and others. So we wanted love to be at the heart of our church because love is at the heart of what God wants of his people. God is love. And the primary commandment he gives us is to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the primary way under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, that we expressed our love for God was in loving our neighbor as ourself. And then when Christ came and established the new covenant, he gave a new commandment to love his disciples as he loved them. And so love for God, love for our neighbors, those who don't know God, and love for other Christians are the three great love commandments of the Bible. And we wanted that to be the face of the church because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we're nothing that we can be the most gifted body in the world, but the more excellent way is to be loved. And if we spoke in tongues and if we had prophetic knowledge, but we didn't have love, we'd be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, just an irritant to the community. And if we gave all of our possessions to feed the poor, and if we gave our bodies to be burned, but we didn't have love, it would profit us nothing. And so because love is central to who God is, who God made us to be and why he redeemed us, because love is the primary command of both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and because Paul says that without love we're nothing, we want to keep drumming, drumming, drumming that we must love, love, love. And because we love God, we trust, obey, adore, exalt, study, and serve, and worship and pray to him 
and we want others to do the same. So the reason that we sing is because we love our Lord and we want to worship him. And the reason we come and study his word is we want to hear what our father has to say to us. And everything that we do related to the worship of God is because we love him. It's an expression of that love and an opportunity to grow and increase in that love. Similarly, because we love one another as God's children in this church, we serve, encourage, edify, support, pray for, and fellowship with one another. And we help each other grow in holiness, faith, and love because that's what good siblings do. And the reason that we reach into each other's lives the way that we do, and the reason we gather so often the way we do, is we love one another. We want to express that and increase in that. And because we love others, our neighbors, we serve them. We pray for them. We share the truth of God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And we invite them to join God's family. In reliance on the Holy Spirit, we prayerfully strive to make disciples of Jesus Christ who glorify God by loving him, one another, and others in accordance with scripture until our Lord returns to reunite us with God forever. So this is who we are as a church. And in the eyes of the state, because such is required by the state, Dini Community Church is a nonprofit corporation according to the laws of the state of Texas and is registered in the city of Denton, Denton County, Texas. Now, we intentionally chose not to become a 501c3, which is a designation granted by the IRS for a tax-exempt organization who has applied for that status with the federal government. And given the fact that our country is moving in an increasingly hostile direction to Christianity, uh, we didn't want to be beholden or subject to the federal government to any greater extent that we had to. And so we chose to incorporate in the state of Texas, which we feel, felt would be less quickly hostile to Christianity than DC and other parts of the country would be. And also so that we could drive to Austin more readily than fly to DC if something came up and have a better opportunity to meet our local representatives. So we chose to become a nonprofit religious organization in Texas. And what that means practically is your contributions are still tax deductible, but our purchases as a church are not tax exempt. So we happily pay an extra eight and a quarter percent sales tax rather than saving money on printing paper for the hope of having more liberty and freedom if the country continues to move in the direction that it has been for some time. So in the eyes of the state, we are a nonprofit religious organization. Uh, in the eyes of the community, we want to be known by our love because Christ said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. But more importantly than our standing in the eyes of the state and the community is our standing in the eyes of God. And this relates directly to our doctrine. And that's why the next section of the constitution and bylaws has to do with the doctrinal statement. So over the dinner table uh, or earlier this afternoon, uh, Michael asked what I was going to be teaching tonight. I said, well, our doctrinal statement. He goes, well, what's that? And Rachel said, well, it's a definition of what a church believes in its theology. And Michael said, well, don't churches just preach the Bible? And they do and they don't. Uh, those organizations that identify themselves with Christianity will use Christian terminology and they will have the Bible in some form in their services. But sadly, they don't all teach the Bible as it was written. They don't all teach according to what Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years of our history. And therefore, we have to be explicit in defining what we believe. And so this is our identity that is communicated to the community of exactly what it is. The word doctrine comes from the Latin doctrina, which is rooted in the word to teach. And the Bible has several verses on this. We're just going to run through them briefly and make a brief observation about what the Bible says about a church's doctrine. Jesus said that in vain do they worship me, talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. What this reminds us is that biblical doctrine is revealed by God, not invented by men. God in his love has revealed his truth to us in his inspired and errant word. And our job is to receive it by believing it and obeying it and by teaching it. And it's not up to modify what God has written. We don't update it. We don't amend it. 
We don't uh, take popularity polls to see what's going to play well with the current culture. God, who is sovereign over all, has revealed what is true, and those who know him believe it, obey it, teach it and share it, and invite others to do the same. But it is not up to us to add to it, to take away from it, to amend it or update it. What God reveals, we believe, obey, and teach. It says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So Paul reminds us and warns us that altering God's doctrine confuses people. It's like a boat tossed away by winds when people begin to alter what the church has always held to be true because God revealed it to be true. And that this is often not done because people didn't know better, but because self-seeking individuals through trickery, craftiness, and deceit schemed and plotted out of greed and self-serving purposes to deceive the people of God. And we have to be aware of that. Thirdly, this is Paul's reason for leaving Timothy in Ephesus. Remain there so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange or literally divergent doctrines. So Paul came, planted the church, gave them what to believe, and people came in after and were trying to alter it in order to deceive the people, to exploit the people for their own self-serving purposes. And when Paul could no longer remain there, he left his trusted disciple Timothy with the assignment, don't let false teachers lead people into divergent teachings. Keep them on track, still believing and affirming, applying and teaching what I revealed to you. The Spirit explicitly says that at later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now, sometimes the source of false teaching is diabolical. It literally is of the, the Diablo, the devil. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness, that you too will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And in that context, or earlier in that, uh, chapter, in that book, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he talks about the God of this world blinding the eyes of the unbeliever to the truth. So the devil is trying to blind people to the truth. He's trying to deceive people and lead them astray from the truth. And the job of the church is to not let that truth be altered, amended, or misled, or covered in any way. Paul says again in 1 Timothy 4, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So first of all, doctrine is something that we follow. Our lives and our actions are based upon our beliefs and convictions. And as we believe those things and as we apply those things, it nourishes us physically. It, I mean, spiritually, it feeds our soul when we feed itself on God's truth and then apply it in our lives. Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So Paul warns Timothy, there's going to be times when it's the congregation themselves who try to bring in false teachers because they want something else taught than God's truth. They find God's word inconvenient or unpopular or no longer acceptable to the world around them. And so they import those who will simply profess what will be popular and pleasing at the moment. And Paul says, but you, Timothy, keep teaching truth. Uh, every teacher, every preacher wants the congregation to be pleased with their teaching and preaching. But ultimately, we're responsible to God. And if God's word says something that will displease others, we still have to communicate God's word. Like a physician who has to tell the truth of a medical diagnosis, whether or not it's going to be popular or resented, it is his responsibility as a physician to communicate the truth and then to tell them what to do about that. Well, likewise, elders of the church are physicians of the soul, and we have to make the diagnosis with the tools that God has given and then say, this is the prescription that God gives. And there's times that that's unpopular. There's times that that's resented. There's times that's dangerous. 
But the job of the doctor is to give the news, and the job of the preacher and the elder is to give the news, no matter how it's received. He tells Titus to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, that is the elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. One of the explicit qualifications of an elder is they have to, one, believe sound doctrine, Two, they have to teach sound doctrine because that's part of their job description. They have to be able to defend sound doctrine and they have to be able to refute false doctrine. And so a difference between an elder and a deacon is an elder is a shepherd who uses the word of God to shepherd the people of God. And therefore they must believe and live according to God's truth, be able to teach it and defend it and to be able to refute those who contradict it or teach otherwise. He says the same thing to uh, Titus and to, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, the things that are accurate, not popular and pleasing. And a final one to Titus. In all things, be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Good deeds flow from good doctrine. Bad doctrine will ultimately always result in bad deeds. And here we see that doctrine can either be pure as God gave it, like a spring, perfectly revealed, or it could become polluted, tainted, impure, when people try to add to it or take away from it or to alter it in a way that serves them or is more popular to the crowds that are receiving it. So the church receives doctrine from God, and we will continue to teach that and to believe that, and to obey that, and to share others and encourage them to do the same. And no matter what happens in our culture, we cannot alter it. We can't be silent about it. We can't update it. We don't get to amend it. We are given stewards. Paul says, guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you. And it's not ours to tamper with. And so what are these doctrines? All scripture is inspired by God and therefore inerrant and authoritative and profitable. But not all scripture is equally clear, and not all scripture is equally essential. Um, it is very clear that the Old Testament says, do not boil a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. It's not especially relevant to most places in Texas today. On the other hand, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 11 that talks about being baptized for the dead. And there are over 200 interpretations of what this might mean in the history of the church. And no one really knows what it means. And so certain things are more clear than others. Certain things are more central than others. And we must distinguish, therefore, between different levels of doctrine. Now, sometimes it's called a doctrinal taxonomy or theological triage. Triage comes from the French word to sort, and we associate it primarily with medical circumstances where someone comes in to the ER or to a physician, and the first thing they do is diagnose how serious is this malady or this accident. And that way, the more serious uh, incidents get prior treatment before those that are less serious. There is a sorting. And in a similar way, there is a different sorting that takes place in discussing doctrine or theology. Uh, some people refer to these as first, second, and third order doctrines. So first order doctrines are those that separate believers from non-believers, or at least orthodox believers from heretical believers. Second order doctrines are those that are essential for the health of the church. In other words, Christians may need to worship separately based on different convictions. So if a certain group of believers is convinced that the Bible teaches that babies should be baptized on the eighth day, and a different group of believers is persuaded by scripture that babies should not be baptized, but only those old enough to understand the gospel and to give a credible profession of faith, then it may be that the pedo-baptists, those who believe in infant baptisms, and the credo-baptist, those who believe in believer's baptism, might need to congregate separately because you're going to have an issue every time a baby is born. I want you, pastor, to baptize my baby glory. I can't because my conviction is otherwise. Well, our conviction is that she must be baptized. And so there's going to be conflict. And there's several issues that may require Christians to worship separately 
even though we can be united in our distinct worship services. And then there's a third level of doctrinal distinctions where Christians within a body can have different convictions and opinions. So many things related to the details of the, turn of, uh, of the return of Christ, there can be a difference of opinion, a difference of understanding within believers in the same Bible study and church, and it not be divisive. But there needs to be a unanimity of leadership on these issues, and that way there's a consistency of the teaching from the pulpit or in the Bible studies or in the classroom about those texts and topics. And so for this reason, the doctrinal statement of Dini Community Church is broken into three sections. The first are the foundational doctrines that identify us with Christians in every time and age, in every denomination and church, because these are held by all Orthodox Christians. Secondly, are those fundamental doctrines that identify us with Protestant evangelicals. And we'll be talking about those next week. And then there's a third category of the doctrinal statement of distinctive doctrines. And these are what distinguish the leaders of Denton of Dini Community Church from other issues that separate evangelicals. So the foundational doctrines that all Christians agree on in all times and places, the fundamental doctrines that identify us as evangelical Protestants, and then the distinctive doctrines in those issues that evangelical Protestants differ on. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on the uh, foundational doctrines. And as we turn to that section of our doctrinal statement, Article 2, it says, in unity, and if we can go to the next slide, Ian. Thank you. And actually, I may have missed one. Can we go to the one that says Article 2, Doctrine in Unity? There you go. That's not Ian's fault. I resorted the slides at the last minute, and he's uh, adapting to my last-minute changes. In unity with the historic universal church, we affirm the foundational doctrines confessed in the Apostles and the Nicene Creeds. Now, the word creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. And a creed is a concise, formal, and authorized statement of important points of Christian doctrine, the classical instances being the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So since the second century, Christians have been affirming the Apostles' Creed. And since the fourth century and the first ecumenical council, Christians have been affirming the Nicene Creed. But the idea of a creed didn't come after the Bible was closed, it actually goes back to Moses and to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God gave an official creed to his people. This is called the Shema, from the Hebrew word meaning here. Here's the foundational creed of God's people Israel. Hear, O Israel. So a creed isn't something they come up with. They don't have a leadership meeting to come up with a vision statement. They receive it. They listen to God. And the essential message is, the Lord, Yahweh, is our God. The Lord is one, or only the Lord. So there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh, the name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And that is our God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God who delivered his people out of Egypt through the Exodus and brought them to Sinai and gave them the law and promised them the coming Messiah, that God is the only God. And he's our God. And therefore, we shall love him, Yahweh our God, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might, with all of our being. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So this basic truth of Yahweh being the only God and being our God was repeated by Orthodox Jews three times a day to this day. And the implication is because our Creator and our Redeemer is our God. We love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And an expression of our love is obedience 
because obedience is God's love language. And we teach our children this. We don't just have an external law. We write it on our heart. We teach it to our children in all places and in all times. We put it on our being. In other words, we're bold to the world about what we believe and whom we serve. We post it on our door and on our gates so that everybody knows I am a child of Yahweh. I am a servant of the Lord. And that's why I believe the way I do and act the way I do and have the loyalties and allegiances and priorities that I do. And they're exclusive. As Deuteronomy 6 goes on to say in verses 12 and following, watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Don't forget that you were in bondage and God delivered you in such a mighty way. Don't forget the privilege of being his redeemed people. You shall fear only the Lord your God. And you shall worship him and swear by his name only is the Ten Commandments. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. You won't worship like your neighbors do because you belong to me. This is an exclusive relationship, like a marriage. And you will not follow me and others as well. You can't add me to your other gods that you serve. I'm a jealous God, it says, and you belong to me and to me alone. This is the basic creed of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the basic creed is that Jesus is Lord. Now, this is going to be uh, maybe a little bit complicated, but it's important, so I'm going to go and take a stab at it. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, was considered so holy that you wouldn't pronounce it if you were a good Jew. You might pronounce it wrong, or you might be disrespectful in some way. And so whenever you saw the word Yahweh, you would say the word Adonai, which means Lord. And so it's known in Hebrew, Kathiv Kareh, which means it is written, it is said. So the Bible is written Yahweh. But what I read aloud when I read scripture is Adonai as a way of respect. And the Greek translation of Adonai is kurios, which our English word is Lord. So to say that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that Jesus is Jehovah. He is God. He is the God man. And Old Testament verses that were applied to Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible are applied to Jesus in the New Testament because he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the basic Christian confession is that Jesus is this creator, redeemer, God. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. So Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's a basic confession and a related belief as to the one who died and rose. And that is what saves us, not our works, not our good deeds, not our national identity, not our racial heritage. It's by grace through faith and faith in Jesus as Lord who died and rose to save us. This was the gospel message, Paul says, that we preach. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the name of Joseph and Mary's son, as Lord, as Yahweh. First Corinthians 12 says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. No one fully, truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit can curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That taking away of the scales, that removal of the veils, that softening of the heart, the opening of the eyes of the heart to believe that Jesus is Lord, that comes from the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who causes us to be born again, who gives us eyes to see. And so those who have the Holy Spirit can acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And Paul goes on to say that there are certain very specific truths that accompany that profession. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So this is Paul's explanation, his definition of the gospel that he came to preach and teach. Which I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, 
and by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So hearing these things, believing and receiving these things, and enduring in these things can save a soul, can take a sinner and make them clean so that they spend an eternity with God in heaven. And what are these truths? Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is the Arabic name for Peter, and then to the other 12, and then to others. So Jesus is God and man, and he died on the cross as a substitute to pay the penalty for our sins, then he rose physically from the dead as attested by the testimony of those who witnessed him and saw him. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament. This was according to scripture, that there's a continuity between the Old Testament revelation and the new, between the Yahweh, creator and redeemer of Israel, and Jesus Yahweh, who's the creator and redeemer of his church. And when we believe that and adhere to that, then our souls are saved and we become a child of God. Now, there's other statements in the Bible like this that try to compress, compress all these vast, staggering truths into short, memorable statements. But that's really what the creeds are. Beginning in the second century with the Apostles' Creed. Now, this is the oldest creed in the church, the oldest compressed official statement of faith. It goes back to what's called the Old Roman Symbol, that is dated to around 140 AD, or approximately a century after the time of Christ. The name comes from a 6th century legend, untrue, that each of the 12 apostles gave one of the lines of the creed. So depending how you break it up, it's often divided into 12 statements. And a legend said that each apostle gave one of these statements. Now that's not factual. But it's still an appropriate name because the Apostles' Creed well summarizes the apostolic doctrine of the essential truths, the first order truths of what the Bible revealed through the Apostles in the New Testament and what the churches have been saying initially. And so as we look at this, you're going to notice, first of all, that it's first person singular, I believe, because the way this originally functioned was not something to be repeated in a church service but something that an individual repeated at a baptismal service to affirm that they truly did believe the saving good news of Jesus Christ. And so the man or woman, having prepared themselves and repented of their sins, would be in the water and they would go down three times and each time they would come up and give this affirmation of belief in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because every individual is saved individually. We're not saved by families or tribes or clans or by nations or races, each individual must believe and receive this. And so each, in belie- each individual affirms this. And the second thing we notice is that this is broken into three parts because Christians worship the triune God. The teaching of the Bible is that there is only one God who exists eternally in three divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, and yet each of whom is distinct. Now, that's mysterious. It's one of the three great mysteries of the Christian faith, but it's been affirmed throughout Scripture as well as throughout church history, is that we worship the triune God. And so the Apostles' Creed begins with the words, I believe in God. And it tells us three things about that God we believe in. First of all, he is the Father that he's a loving God who gives life and sustains life and preserves life like a father does. And that he's almighty. He's not just a God of thunder, a God of the ocean, or the God of the plain or the valley. He is the almighty God. In fact, he is the creator of the heaven and the earth, which is a way of saying of everything. So the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this acknowledges that that God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Isaiah, that God is the God I believe in. 
He's singular. He's a loving father. He's almighty sovereign. And he expressed that fatherly sovereign love and power by creating everything that exists. Francis Schaeffer said, Genesis 1-1 is the most important verse of the Bible because it lets us know that everything was created by God and therefore belongs to God and exists to glorify him. And then it moves into the second and longest part of the confession related to Jesus Christ. Not that he's more important than the Father, but that his identity and work was more controversial than the Father at that time. And we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior that God was going to send, the anointed one, and that he is the Son of God, and that he's our Lord, the one that we serve. We believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit miraculously and therefore born of the Virgin Mary. We believe in the incarnation, that God took on human nature, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. We believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was an historical figure, not a myth, that he was someone who took on flesh that could suffer and die, not just an apparition or an angel, that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried, that he didn't just swoon. It wasn't just a a charade. He truly did die, and he truly was buried. Now, many of you who grew up maybe reciting this next go into the lions, and he descended into hell. And that is not part of the Apostles' Creed in our doctrinal statement, because that was not part of the original Apostles' Creed. It was a later edition that came several centuries after the Apostles' Creed originated and then became tradition, so it's been traditionally memorized. But when you go and actually look at what was the original document that the Christian church affirmed, it did not contain that phrase, and therefore that phrase has been removed here. Now, I suspect that's going to be uh, maybe difficult to swallow for some, and so I give a reference at the bottom of the page, and again, all of you all will be receiving copies of this, of an article giving the historical data behind that statement, but that's why it's absent. We believe that he ascended to heaven, and that he is currently seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, but he's coming back because from there he will come to judge the living and the dead, or in the old King James fashion, the quick and the dead. We also believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And so the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, and those who are born again make up the church. And this church, this people of God, is holy. We've been set aside for a holy purpose, and therefore we seek to live holy lives And by Catholic, it has nothing to do with the Bishop Rome or the Roman Catholic Church. Catholicos has the idea of according to the whole. So the church is universal. It extends to every redeemed person in all ages and in places. It is a global body. It's not part of one ethnicity. It's not Eastern or Western. It's not American or anything else. It is part of this global movement that God has brought about through the redemption of individuals and the gathering of them into this church. And each local church is an expression of this greater whole, a manifestation of this beautiful body that God has been creating since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the benefits that we enjoy because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body, that though we die, we will rise one day and we will live forever with God in an everlasting life that Christ made possible. So this is the Apostles' Creed. It's Trinitarian. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It focuses not just on Jesus Christ, but on the three final days of Jesus Christ's life, not his three-year teaching ministry, but on what all that culminated in, that the Son of Man came to offer his life a ransom for many. And so it's the death and the resurrection and the ascension that's primarily affirmed and his promised return. The next creed is known as the Nicene Creed because it met in a city in Turkey known as Nicaea. The original meeting was in 325 AD. And then there was a second meeting in 381 that's actually the version that people associate with this Nicene Creed. 
Now, in 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine, on the eve of the Battle of Milvion Bridge, in which he was outnumbered and not expected to survive, saw a vision in the heavens of what's called the key row. Uh, so the first two Greek letters of Christ's name is an X, a key, and a row that looks like an R. And he had his soldiers paint this symbol on their shields. And because the word underneath it said, in this sign conquer, they went forth in that sign. He won the battle. He became emperor. And then he began first removing the penalties for being Christian and then endorsing and supporting Christianity. And then by the end of his life, he became a Christian himself, or at least professed that and was baptized as a Christian. And because it was now free to gather, the bishops from around Christendom gathered in Turkey, in Nicaea, because there was a gentleman named Arius in Alexandria, Egypt, who was saying that Jesus was not God, but rather the first created being. He was an angel. Now, he was the best angel, the mightiest angel, but he wasn't the same as God. And so the church facing this threat, gathered together as an ecumenical council, a universal council for the first time in Turkey. And they came up with this statement to clarify the full divinity of Jesus Christ that the church believes in. So it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same divine essence as the Father. And through him, all things were made. And for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate, taking on human nature by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And he was made a human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And we believe in the one holy catholic and apostolic church we affirm one baptism of the holy spirit for the forgiveness of sins we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come amen this is the foundational creed of the christian church uh, there was a book that came out several years ago called theological roundtable and this author had the idea of speaking to a number of famous theologians representatives of numerous traditions and asking them the same questions and compiling their responses so that people could read how they were the same and how they differed. And one of the questions he asked was, what is the most essential creed in the history of the church? And to a person, no matter their tradition or nationality, they all affirmed the Nicene Creed as the foundational confession and creed of the church. This was the first ecumenical council. This was the first ecumenical creed and to this day, it summarizes what the church has believed and taught and professed since the early days of the church. And so we, as Dina Community Church, are proud to be part of that long heritage. We're proud of our legacy. We're proud of our history. And we proudly identify ourselves, not just with other Bible churches or community churches, but with all those who love the Lord, with all those who profess Jesus is Lord. And even though for a variety of reasons we may worship separately, they are still brothers and sisters in Christ that we are proud to join arms with and to serve alongside in whatever ways that we can. On the, on the tower at the University of Texas facing the West Mall, actually the South Mall, is a partial phrase from John chapter 8. And 832 says, You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And for whatever reason, they seem to have left off the first portion of that sentence, which is in verse 31, that Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Jesus came teaching a revelation of the Father. Those who received it and believed it became his disciples and followed after him, applying it to our lives. 
And it's that truth that makes us free. Not a figment, not just a faith that we fabricated. The truth revealed by God concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of what he did, and how we can unite ourselves in him. And this is the truth that we are proud to profess as a church, as part of our foundational doctrines, that we are Christian. And by that we mean we believe and profess what the church has done since the second century, because we believe that it summarizes and synthesizes accurately what is revealed in the inspired and errant words of the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles. And so that is what makes us Christian. And that is what aligns us with all the other Christian churches and denominations in the neighborhood and the community and around the world I and mean, around the globe and throughout history. So that is our first set of doctrinal convictions summarized long ago, embraced by us. And as in the words of G.K. Chesterton, as sung by Rich Mullins, we did not make them, but they are making us. And we're proud to believe them and to share them and to confess them. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that you didn't leave religion to a matter of reason, because we're often irrational and wrong. That it's more than a matter of moods and emotions, because they drift and shift. And it's certainly not a matter of uh, cultural polling and popularity, but you have spoken. And you used your spirit to give us inspired, inerrant, enduring, abiding, authoritative truths that can set us free when we embrace them, when we receive them and walk in them. And so, Father, we only want to teach and preach and obey what you have actually revealed. And so we pray that you would continue to give us insight and understanding, that you would give us humility and prayerfulness. Father, that you would protect us from deception and cowardice, and that from the birth of this church until the day that your son returns for it, we would always be true to the doctrine that you've given us. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.